he's risen. Would you please uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, and we'll be looking at verses uh, 13 through 15. Matthew 19, 13 through 15. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The Word of God says, Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying hands on them, he departed from there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, short story. Thank you for this small section of this narrative as Jesus is going, taking steps closer and closer to Jerusalem to eventually be turned over and to be crucified. Father, it's a uh, story that we probably can remember uh, even from our days of Sunday school. But I pray that the Holy Spirit would illumine our minds so that we can understand the message of it. That we can understand... uh, what Jesus is communicating about uh, the children and the kingdom. Father, I pray that it won't just be a little bit more of information for us to have, but it will be something that we will apply to our lives. We know that it's your will that we become more like Christ and less like ourselves, and I pray that we will put this into practice for that purpose. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. What would you have to do to be great? What sacrifices would you be willing to make so that you could be really, really great? What, what, uh, what things would you put aside so that you could take a step further, so that you could be a little bit bigger, so that people would think you're a little bit more powerful? What things would you have to do to sacrifice to be great? We remember a little while back when the, they were looking for a new uh, Supreme Court justice and they ended up getting uh, Amy uh, to be this, uh, uh, what, what do you call it, the Supreme Court justice. And, and uh, there were some arguments against her because she was a very uh, pro-life. And uh, we remember reading about Stevie Nicks of Fleetwood Mac that she made the comment that at a certain point in her career, she decided to abort a baby because she felt that at that moment, she needed to really focus on the band. And if she did not have this abortion, uh, Fleetwood Mac wouldn't have happened. And um, she decided to sacrifice a person so that the career could move forward. Uh, We can think about uh, governments, kingdoms. Uh, What are they willing to do to be able to advance? Uh, Right now, there are a couple different genocides going on. The uh, Darfuris Darfuris of Sudan and the regions of Miramar, they're being uh, killed. And on some level, I don't know all the specifics about it, but on some level, there are certain governments that are seeing they really would prefer them not to be there. And they want them moved out. They want them killed or moved out. And so there's these crises happening around the world. Of course, we can remember back to the time of Hitler. 
Uh, Hitler wanted a, an ethnic group of one blood to have a, a certain culture, to have a certain language, to, to be involved. And so he was willing to, to make Jews die so that he could be able to move this uh, idea forward. He wanted a stronger government. But what are we willing to sacrifice to become greater? There's a certain paradox that we see in, in the Christian life. And what Jesus presents is that paradox of, of greatness comes through smallness, where we might think that to become great, we have to continue augmenting and being greater and greater. But Jesus says the opposite is true, that you have to become smaller and smaller and smaller. What we see in this text is this idea of Jesus there talking to children and uh, talking to the disciples and talking to them. Now, our historical context, where we're at in this narrative, is that Jesus is on his way down from Galilee to uh, Jerusalem. He's stopped on the other side of the Jordan. He's there going to be uh, healing people. We saw that he, there was a multitude around him. He's healing them. He's investing his life into their life. Uh, it's on this road that uh, there's this whole group of people who some of them might be in a few, week, uh, a few days forward, a few weeks forward, they'll be screaming out, crucify him, crucify him. But as we look at this, we can see these different characters. Now, in a narrative, uh, narratives present different characters. And one of the simplest ways of describing characters is using round characters and flat characters. Uh, round characters are the main characters, and they're the ones that kind of push the narrative forward. You kind of see more about them. You understand a little bit about their, uh, what they're thinking, what's their purpose, what, what's going on with them. And then you also have uh, flat characters. Flat characters, they just serve to move the narrative forward. They're just there to make the story make sense. Because if you don't have it, you wonder, what in the world happened? How did this happen? And, and that flat character is introduced at that time to, to really show what's going on. Uh, I'll use an example. Think about David and Bathsheba. What do we know about David? Well, David, he's a king. Uh, David is in Jerusalem when it was the time for the kings to go out to battle, to go and have war. But he's there, he's sleeping, and he goes out and he looks over Jerusalem and he sees Bathsheba. We know things about his intent because he asked for some messengers to say, who is that? And, and to have her called and we know things about David and his intention and what he does. Bathsheba, it's different. We know that Bathsheba is beautiful because David thinks she's beautiful. We don't really hear anything from Bathsheba, whether she is uh, uh, anything at all, except for the fact when she finally sends a messenger to say that she's pregnant. But even in that, it's just to move the narrative forward to show how complex his sin has become. So we have round characters and flat characters. Sometimes our, when we read flat characters, we, um, we kind of read over them quickly, and we don't pay much attention to them. And in our three little verses that we have here, we have mostly flat characters, and the temptation would be to just kind of skip over them and not think about all the implications that are involved for this narrative to happen. So well, let's look at the different characters in this narrative. The first is those who brought the children. We see that in verse 13, that there were some children who were brought to Jesus, to him. Uh, who were these people? Well, it, it would be illogical to say that these were the disciples that brought the children, right? Because we see their reaction to uh, the children later on, so it would be kind of illogical to say, the kids come to Jesus and they get away from Jesus. You know, I mean, this, that just seems illogical. 
It also grammatically doesn't make sense for Jesus to be bringing the children to himself because it was brought to him, and that to him makes it kind of impossible for him to be to him, but then there at the same time. That, that just grammatically doesn't make any sense at all. So there was someone involved in these children's lives that saw that Jesus was valuable. It could have been a parent, could have been an uncle, could have been a grandfather, grandmother, it could have been a neighbor, but somebody saw these kids and decided to take them to Jesus, and specifically that he might lay hands on them and pray that there would be this blessing involved. Now, as we look at this, I think it's important to kind of make some uh, implications and applications about what we're seeing here. The first thing to notice of this is that the, per the individuals who brought the children, they had to, on some level, value Jesus. I mean, they've got the option of staying at home and drinking horchata, or they have the opportunity to take their children to Jesus. And in between the two options, they somehow valued Jesus higher than sipping on horchata, right? On some level, they had to see Jesus more important than whatever TV program was going on at the time. On some level, they had to see that Jesus was more important, more valuable than even the Pharisees and the Levites and, and the other people that were around there that could have maybe they'd taken their kids and have a prayer over them. Somehow they see Jesus as somebody who is a little bit higher up, and so they decide to take them to Jesus. They recognized a value in Jesus. Now, not only did they recognize a value, but in taking these kids to Jesus, it, it required some planning. It required some planning. Uh, where is Jesus exactly? Well, the narrative doesn't say. He's on the other side of the Jordan. It's not like he has a storefront set up there and, and people can Google it and say, oh, there it is. And, and they go. They have to make an effort to try to find where Jesus is at, and, and, and they have to go. Which means that the night before, they had to turn off the TV and put the kids to bed earlier, right, than what they would have usually done. They said, no, you can't sleep over because tomorrow we're going to go see Jesus. You're going to stay here because we've got to make plans to go see Jesus tomorrow. There was planning involved. It was an effort. They had to look for a route. What route are we going to do? They couldn't just in the morning wake up, take me to Jesus and start walking, right, this way. They had to make a plan to be able to get there. It doesn't tell us where they came from. It leaves it vague purposefully so that we can guess that maybe they came from a distance. Maybe they were close by, but we don't see him in a city. There's just a multitude of people there. How did they get there? Someone had to have the forethought of taking them there. Now, another thing when we think about this making a plan, making this route to get to Jesus, they had to acknowledge on a very basic level where they were at, where that child was at, and where Jesus was at, right? They had to acknowledge where that child was at and then where Jesus was at and then think about how to make steps forward to get to Jesus because he wasn't just going to appear before them, right? They had to make some type of plan to say, okay, we have to acknowledge this is where Jesus is at and we want to get there. So the kid is here. How are we going to get there? I think that's a very important aspect to think about as you have different people in your life, younger people in your life, and you're investing your life into their life. It might be grandkids, it might be children, it might be a neighbor, it might be a nephew. 
But there is a, an aspect where you need to acknowledge and try to figure out where they're at in their Christian walk. Are they already saved? Maybe they have a vocabulary, but they have no fruit. Maybe they have some fruit, but there's some areas that they're failing. You have to acknowledge where they're at and then help them to take steps forward. And that's what they did. And they end up getting to Jesus and they have him bless them. Now, how do we do this? What's involved in this? There has to be an immersion process. It can't just be, it can't just be a one-time deal. You're like, but this is a one-time deal. Yeah, but if we think about Jesus as being the ultimate wisdom, the Logos who was in the beginning and created all things, and we know from Proverbs that wisdom was there at the beginning creating all things, and that was Jesus. Uh, Proverbs tells us to be meditating on wisdom, to seek wisdom continually over and over again. So this isn't really a one-time deal. The application of this ends up being all of one's life. You're seeking after Christ purpose and desire. So how do you do it? It's an immersion process. How do you learn a language? You see the little creature, creature, sorry. Uh, you see the little baby, and the little baby, what does he do? He, he starts to listen to the babble of the parents, right? The parents go, and the baby's just like looking at it, right? And then little by little, they start to notice certain pauses between sounds. And, and the, the pauses, they, they notice that the the sound aspect starts to have certain forms. And certain forms of when it's talking about past tense and certain forms when it's talking about present and future. Before they even go to school, they're able to make sentences of the past, present, and future. It's incredible. How do they do that? They're hearing it all the time. An aspect of taking your kids to Jesus isn't just a one-time deal. It's an immersion process where they are over and over again meditating on who Jesus is. Now, if you think that I'm talking about taking your kids to church, please understand that taking your kids to Jesus involves much more than church. A, a whole lot more than church. We, we, we only have Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesdays. We have Bible drill, uh, but this involves a whole lot more. It, it involves where you're showing your kids to read God's word, to understand who he is. This, this is his revelation of who he is. It's about spending time and reading God's word and understanding God's character so that you can know how to act in, in, in different situations. It, it involves also looking at the motivation of your child's heart. Say you have two kids. One kid is, is always doing everything you want. I mean, they're just compliant to everything. And then another kid is Stubborn, I mean just stubborn. You might be focused more on that stubborn kid. And you might think, well, why can't you be like this other kid? I mean, come on, just be like this other kid. You've got the genes in you, just do it. But there's a thing here that this child who is being very compliant might be doing it to control their world. Like their motivation in their heart might not be to please God. It might just be to make other people happy. And therefore, it's rebellion against God. To, to, to think, well, this one doesn't give me heartache, so I'm not going to... You're failing to see that, what's going on in that kid's heart. You're failing to see what's going on, that there's probably rebellion against God. Just because they're compliant to what you say doesn't mean that they're doing it for the right reason. So taking your kids, to, it involves a whole lot more than church. It involves digging down and to see what's, what's making their heart pump, 
Why are they doing what they're doing? So it involves a lot more than just taking your kids to church, but please understand that it also involves taking your kids to church. If you go to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glories, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. What is God, what is Christ doing right now? He is actively involved in the church to present her spotless and without wrinkle. Can you really say that you're going to pursue after Christ and not be involved in the church? That'd be ridiculous. That just doesn't make sense because Christ is involved with the church. He's sanctifying the church. He's involved with the church. And to say, well, I'm not going to be involved with the church. I just want Jesus. That's absurd because he's involved with the church. So this it involves taking your kids to Jesus involves more than the church, but it will definitely at least involve the church in some aspect. Now, we see those who brought the children. That, those are one character. We're back in Matthew chapter 19, uh, verse 13. We see these characters, which are the individuals who brought the children. Now, there's also the children. And the children here, they seem rather flat. I mean, we don't know anything about them. We don't know if they were whining and crying all their way there. We don't know if they could say, I'm tired, you know, and, and, and pouting. And we don't know anything about them other than that they went there. And the important thing to think about is uh, God's use of children. He, he uses young people for his, his work. D David was very young when God used him to kill Goliath. And, I mean, that's an amazing story of a young person that God used. And here we see this children being brought, and we think, well, what's the point? I mean, they can't really do anything. They're not tithers. We won't want to invest in them, right? They're not tithers. Uh, there's an importance that God gives on children. Uh, you think about the importance when we consider Acts chapter 19. You'll, you'll remember the story. Uh, Paul, through different circumstances, had doors open and closed. He wanted to go further into Asia. God was closing those doors and moving them into Europe. And, and as he's going there, he comes across Timothy and his mother and his grandmother. And, and through that, uh, he realizes that this is somebody who he really wanted on his missionary team. How was it that Timothy ended up being on Paul's team? Is it because he just discipled him really quickly? No. He had a mother and a grandmother that invested their life into his life. So that one day, if God wanted to use them, he would be ready so that he could go. They had surrendered him. They had given him back to God and said, you take him and do whatever. We're going to invest our lives into his life so that at the appropriate time, if you so choose God, he'll go off. And God used him. He was involved in the church in Ephesus. He, he was involved with Paul traveling around. An amazing thing to see. Because someone invested their life into his life. Now, we see the guardians or the parents who brought the children. We see the children, but we also see the disciples. 
the disciples here are, are presented as uh, rebuking them. Who's the them? Uh, the them is plural. It could be the children. Uh, so if you want to say that it's the children, then you kind of have this idea. The parents are saying to the kids, go up to Jesus. And then the kids go up to Jesus, and the disciples are there and say, get away from Jesus. And so they're, you know, arguing again. Or maybe it, 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 a better way is that the parents are there with them or the guardians are there with them. So here are the disciples. They're reprimanding both the children and the parents for taking them close to Jesus. Now, that, that's amazing to think about for two different reasons. The first reason is it's the disciples. You, you would almost expect this from, um, from the Pharisees. You would almost expect this from the Sadducees. You would definitely expect it from maybe the Romans, the, the soldiers. They, they got no use for these Jewish kids. You, you would think that this would be something coming from them, but no, it's, it's coming from his disciples. And the reason that should be shocking to us is because over in chapter 18, uh, verses uh, 1 through 6, we see the situation where they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember? They were arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says to them in verse 3, Truly I say unto you, unless you are converted and become like a child, like children, you will not enter the kingdom. He put a child right in front of them and told them the importance that unless you're like this, you don't get in. Something happened between chapter 18 and chapter 19 that that flew way over. And they had no application for that truth now. The sad thing about this is that if the disciples who are with Jesus could be so dense, what hope is there for us? I mean, really. Go Sunday to Sunday and we can't remember what was said last Sunday. And we definitely don't apply it. Here's these, they, they, they don't see how what the truth was in chapter 18, how it relates to chapter 19. It's totally like totally disconnected, like a totally new story for them. It shocks us to see how the disciples treated them. It's, it's unfortunate that people are like this. Children, oh, we don't want children. We want children because we want the parents here, but you know, the children they make noise, they're coloring, they're a distraction, they're noisy. Maybe. I uh, <laughs> that might be your perspective. My perspective is a little bit different. Um, a child crying or coloring or doing something doesn't distract me as, as much as someone falling asleep. I mean, someone falling asleep, I start thinking about, boy, I'm so glad I spent so much time studying for you to be sleeping through this right now. I praise the Lord for that. Now, that's distracting. And then when they start to snore, you're like, come on. Somebody throw something at that person. We can have sometimes an attitude that um, kids aren't welcome here. we got a special place over there for them. I, I hope that's not your heartbeat. You say, well, they're noisy. Oh, the lack of children's noise is, is deafening, much more than any noise that they make in here. When there's no kids, oh, it's so deafening. It's about to die, the place is, when there's no kids. And here they have this problem where they, they just don't understand the importance of the children. 
They, they just don't get it. And they're ready to cast them out. Now, the last character that we see here is of Jesus. How is Jesus going to react? There's two audacities here. The one of the, the parents or the guardians to bring their kids to him, and then the one of the disciples. If you had been investing your life into a group of disciples, they're your guys, they're, you're, you've been training them, uh, there would be a certain amount of pressure to kind of back them up if they say something, right? I mean, it'd be kind of embarrassing if they go and start doing something and they got it wrong. It would be a reflection on you that you didn't teach them correctly, right? So you would almost want to back up your disciples, but Jesus doesn't do that at all. In fact, he rebukes them. He uses two imperatives when he's looking at this. He says, let the children alone, that's the first imperative, and do not hinder them from coming to me. There's a second, do not hinder. Two imperatives, to allow the children, if, if they didn't get it with the first imperative, they'll definitely get it with the second one. Two imperatives, let the kids alone. Let them come to me, he's saying. Now, in what aspect is the kingdom of heaven, because that's what he says, the, the kingdom belo uh, belongs to uh, such as these. In, in what aspect? I think that answer needs to be developed out of the theme and purpose of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew presents this aspect of a disciple. And very much like a child, a disciple needs to be taught, learn how to act. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus sits on the uh, Sermon on the Mount and he starts explaining. He starts explaining what's it like to be a, a citizen of the kingdom. It's totally different than an, from an earthly kingdom. I mean, it's totally different. It, and he goes and explains this. And, and in a real way, a disciple, a child of the kingdom is totally different because there's a whole different standard of values, whole different standard uh, of how to act, how to treat one another. So in that aspect... But I think in another aspect, a more important aspect, is that children are, um, children are dependent on their parents or on their guardians. They, they depend on them. And that's something very true of those who get into the kingdom. There's not a single one that says, I'll get there on my own. There's not a single one. There's no one that says, I'll make it. No, you'll depend on God's plan or you won't get there at all. Now, this aspect of dependence doesn't just happen at the moment of salvation, but it goes throughout the, the rest of your life. There's a book uh, written by Jim Berg, and uh, he, it's called Change Into His Image, and he talks about this aspect of depending on God, and he uses this uh, example of this child who gets 25 cents a week uh, as an allowance. And uh, one day, the, the kid comes up to his dad, and he says, uh, last week, I used my 25 cents, but this week... I have my 25 cents, and I want to go buy a bicycle. Father says, hot dog, let's go do it. So they go to the store, and there they are in the bike shop, and he finds this bike that he really likes. I mean, he just loves this bike. And uh, he, they take it up there. They roll it up to the cashier, cashier lady. She rings it up, and it comes to 100 bucks. And the little boy reaches in his pocket. Got my 25 cents. I want to buy this bike. The cashier's like, uh, so she looks at the father, and the father nods and says, go ahead. So she takes the 25 cents. He tells the son to step outside, and he'll be right there. Who paid the 99 and 75? The father did. 
I mean, it would be really ridiculous if that kid later on said, see that bike? I bought it. I did it. It sounds really ridiculous when we think, you know where I'm at in my life? I got there by my, myself. The house that I have, I purchased that. The cars I drive, I did that. And God's like, where'd you get the strength to do that? How were you able to think? Who gave you the health so that you could be able to do that? It's quite arrogant to think that somehow we're on our own doing these things. We have a dependence on God. And we, when we decide to ignore that dependence on God, it's called an act of rebellion against God. We're rebelling and saying, no, I'll do it myself. And God says, really? Really? You won't. It's only through God who allows us to do things. Now, we see this dependence and we can apply some things about it. And I want to look at some things. The first is we, we need to stop hindering kids and, and, and to come to Jesus. And that means being involved in their lives. Older people being involved in children's lives, helping them grow, to know more about Jesus. Also, the aspect of the kingdom is a very humble, uh, there's a very humble aspect. And that's because the citizens of that kingdom are very humble. From the point of view of the citizenship, the kingdom of heaven is very humble. From the point of view of God, the king, it's not humble at all. It's great. The other aspect that we see is that Jesus blessed the children. It says there at the end, after laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And we know that he's departing from there to go to Jerusalem. And there he's going to be crucified. There he's going to be tortured. And there he's going to die. What do you do when you're on your way to death? What, what do you do? I don't know if you go to uh, yard sales. I, I don't like yard sales. My wife likes yard sales. I think if somebody's taking it out of their home to get rid of it, there's a reason, right? But my wife, she likes yard sales, and she likes to go there and look at what they have. And, and um, you see in the estate sales when the person's died and they're getting rid of the stuff, all the books about what vitamins to take just to have one more day of life. Well, the, the perfect diet so that you can have a healthier life. And it, it's just a testimony of them trying to have an extra day, another week, just one more year. And they've spent all that money and there's all those books for sale. You can take them all for 25 cents. What's Jesus doing? He's investing his life in children. What would we do? We've got a week to live. I've got experiences I want to have. There's places I want to travel to. And we would want to use up any funds we had to, to go have all those life experiences right before dying. Not Jesus. He's going to invest his life in children. Even on the way to his death. I think it's a very powerful example for us. We need to live mightily for God by purposely making ourselves smaller and smaller. You say, how does that happen? In that we acknowledge daily our dependence on God. Every day we become smaller and smaller when we realize that we need God for every aspect of our life. Remember what John the Baptist said? His disciples came up to him and said, John, Jesus now has more disciples. You baptized him and he has more disciples than you. John said, he must increase, and I must 
decrease. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. As we pause here just for a moment, before we go into the Lord's Supper, I pray that we can examine our hearts. Father, we won't have a time of invitation per se, but I do want us to spend some time meditating on our own life. Have we been trying to increase? Have we been trying to grow more and more? Or have we been decreasing? Father, I pray that we will meditate on this fact, that we will confess any sins that we have to. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.